Well, on the screen here, um, you should see a phrase that you've probably heard from time to time in our culture of late. People will talk about some particular issue, and they'll say this, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Most recently, this phrase has been very commonly used to talk about anyone who's opposed to same-sex marriage. Do a quick Google search, uh, and you'll see many articles claiming that those who oppose same-sex marriage are, quote, on the wrong side of history. Now, the mentality behind this phrase has been used um, throughout world history on a number of issues. Maybe not this particular phrase, but the mentality behind it has been used, and the basic idea behind this is the same. When you hear someone saying this, what they're essentially saying is, the demise of your position is inevitable, okay? You can't continue to hold your position So, why don't you hurry up, get with the program along with the rest of us, and figure this thing out. Just come along with the rest of us. Basically, someone who says this is saying, your ideas are quaint, they're outdated, and the rest of us get it. And your ideas will be exposed as lacking soon enough. So, why don't you come along for the ride? Really, what this phrase is appealing to is something that's it's very basic to human nature and in some ways is a good thing and in many ways is a bad thing, and that's the desire to, to have the approval of the crowd or the group, to be a part of some community, to be going along with the majority of people. And the idea behind this is really that history is marching toward a desired goal, There's some end point that we want to reach out there. And listen, you don't want to end up on the wrong side of that goal, okay? You don't want to be the one left out when we reach that end point and that magnificent goal that we're heading toward. Now, if you read online or you hear people give speeches and they use this phrase, honestly, most of the time today, this phrase is, is this phrase is used as a bullying tactic, right? I mean, it's used to say that you need to get in step with the prevailing notions of the age that we're living in. And there's a lot to critique about this phrase that is not helpful at all. But I will say, I do agree with the basic presupposition, the basic idea of this phrase. And my guess is, is that you do too. History is leading to a desired goal. And the reality is that you don't want to end up on the wrong side of that goal at all. The fact is, is that history has always had two very distinct groups of people. Throughout history, that's been the case. And these two groups of people have been headed in opposite directions. And as you look down through the history of God's people and the way that we've interacted with the world, there have been many, many times where God's people have been pressed, have been persecuted. It's happening all over the world right now. And they've been persecuted by a group of people who will say things like this. You don't want to end up on the wrong side of history. Get with the program. Get with the prevailing notions of the age. But true believers understand 
the work that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, and they place their hope in his sovereign hand that is moving all events toward his desired goal at the end of the age. Now, one of the reasons that I went to this text this morning, Psalm 2, is that right now I know that, that a lot of us are feeling like things are a little bit out of control. And it's kind of crazy right now. There's a lot that's been happening culturally. And so this morning, I just want to come with God's Word, and I want to offer you hope in the midst of difficulty and in the midst of frustration with the way things are going. There's a poem in Scripture. If you're not there, you can turn there. But this particular poem, Psalm 2, lays out this paradigm of the right and the wrong side of history. And this poem tells us exactly what God has done on our behalf to ensure that when the final inning is played, that we are on the right side of history. So if you're not there, open to Psalm 2. And as we go through this this morning, one of the things I like to do is, uh, is to try to summarize what we're going to talk about in one sentence. And so you can see that on the screen this morning. If you had to say everything comes to this point, here's what we're going to talk about this morning, right? The Lord responds to overwhelming opposition by installing and exalting his king over all the earth. And we must find refuge in him. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, all right? So now you can fall asleep, you're good to go, everything's settled. But I'd like to try to flesh this out for us this morning through the psalm, and we're going to do that by, that by looking at four pieces of this struggle for dominion, right? So there's this, there's this struggle that's happening between these two opposing groups, each one saying they have the right side of history that's headed toward this end point, and this morning I want to talk about these, these four pieces that this psalm gives us of this struggle. And ultimately the goal for these four pieces is to help you, to help me, to help all of us together to place our hope more firmly in God and in what He's doing. So let's start with the very first piece. And this is found in verses 1 through 3. And this is the world's coup d'etat. The world's coup d'etat. Now, as you start looking at this psalm, Psalm 2, it was written by David. It doesn't say that at the top, but the New Testament tells us that it was written by David. And this is, there's a lot to this, but if you want to go back and study it, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together form the introduction to the entire Psalter. Beautiful poems. They introduce the themes that are going to be developed and carried throughout the rest of the Psalter. And so, it's very important that you and I understand what's happening in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 before we start to read the rest of the Psalms. In fact, I would say a lot of the Psalms find their context in the meditations that David gives in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And as I read these first three verses, just think and be aware of the very serious opposition that has formed against God's rule. Listen to this. Why do the nations rage or noisily assemble and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, this is not just true, this, this opposition against God and his dominion. This is not just true in David's time. The reality is, is that there's always been opposition. Since the fall in Genesis 3, there's always been those who are opposed to God's dominion and to God's kingly authority. God created the world for mankind to dwell in it and then for mankind to have dominion over the earth. So man was supposed to be sort of a second ruler who was supposed to take dominion over the earth, but God was ultimately the king and the one who had the sovereign rule of the world. But when Adam and Eve chose to sin, they tried to usurp God's authority and his dominion, and they tried to claim that dominion for themselves. And in pride and arrogance, they tried to establish their own moral order. They tried to decide what went in the right category and what went in the wrong category. They tried to make those decisions apart from God. And as you start to read through the book of Genesis, you see these two distinct Groups of people played out over and over again in Scripture. I mean, what is the very first story after Adam and Eve? It's Cain and Abel. And the wicked is trying to destroy the righteous one there. Then you move on to Noah. And before Noah, the earth is filled with violence. At the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, the whole world comes together in what? In opposition. They're trying to make a name for themselves and not give glory and honor to God. Later in Genesis, Esau hates Jacob. Egypt murders the children of Israel and keeps them in slavery. Tries to destroy God's people. You continue on through Scripture and you get to the time of David and the Philistines and other people groups are trying to wreak havoc with God's people. And so David is very aware of this opposition to God's reign, and he very much feels this during his own time and during his own life. And so I think what you have here in verses 1 to 3 is I think you have David meditating. He's writing a poem, and he's meditating on this opposition that is continually against the Lord and has been throughout world history and that he feels very poignantly in his own time. Look at the groups that he addresses here in verses 1 and 2. It's not just a random person here or there. He says the nations, the peoples. Okay, this is an organized system that is opposed to God's rule. It's all the nations and their citizens. Look at verse 2. It involves kings. It involves rulers. Now, these are the same people that are described back in Psalm 1 and verse 1. You're very familiar with that verse. The counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. Those are the people on a corporate level as nations and as kings and as rulers. Those are the people who are opposed to God's rule. And it's interesting in Psalm 1, the, the righteous man meditates, he thinks, he plots, on God's word, but in Psalm 2, the same word is used there to talk about the nations plotting, meditating, trying to figure out how they can oppose God's authority 
and God's reign. As you read these first couple of verses, you kind of get this picture of an angry mob rushing at the king's palace. And they are frustrated with the reign and with his authority. And look specifically at who they're frustrated with in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's the anointed? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Don't jump too quickly to the New Testament. We'll talk about who that is when we get to verse 6. But I want you to notice something here in verse 3. Okay, This group of people, this opposition to God's rule, this organized system, they express their opposition to God's rule in specific ways. Look what they say in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds. Whose bonds? The Lord's and the anointed apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, this is the opposition speaking, and look how they describe God's authority. Okay, They describe it as burdensome and binding. They feel that God's authority is somehow restrictive on them. It's frustrating to them. I mean, you can imagine what it would be like to be bound up with cords, not be able to do what you want to do, And that's exactly how they feel. They want to be free from any and all obligations that God places on them. There's a word for this. It's called autonomy. Autonomy. That's exactly what they're looking for. And this attitude that is described here in verse 3, this is the same attitude of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And this is the attitude that he talked Adam and Eve into buying into. I want to be free from the obligations that God has placed on me because I'm his creature. There's a really helpful quote that I'm going to put up on the screen here that describes this autonomy. Autonomy means self-law. Rather than submit to God's command, Eve became a law unto herself. She decided to do whatever seemed right to her. If that happened to coincide with what God said, all the better. But if not, too bad for God. It doesn't take a a brilliant cultural commentator to look at the world that we're living in today and to see how this mentality is playing itself out amongst the the people that that we live and that we work with. This mentality is being expressed in serious ways in our culture today by people who are pushing back against obligations that God places on them because they're His creation. People are saying things like this. Don't hold us down with your dated sexual ethics. Don't burden us with unwanted children. Don't talk about gender as a fixed biological reality. We don't want those things. We want to throw those cords off from us. We're tired of dealing with those obligations to God. And this autonomy has has been something that's always been characteristic of humanity. People have always raised a fist against God and said, Leave me alone. I'm tired of your rule. And your authority. And it's easy to look out and see that amongst unbelievers. But let's turn our hearts 
turn our attention to our own hearts for a moment. This desire for autonomy is something, unfortunately, that carries over even after salvation. This is one of the things that we continually struggle with and is deep-seated in our hearts, even as believers. One of the reasons that God tells children to obey their parents is because of this desire for autonomy. This is deeply rooted in the heart of every person who is born. Children cannot be a law unto themselves. They cannot decide what is right and what is wrong. Kids need parents to be able to instruct them. Now, if you're a child in here this morning, if you're under your parents' authority, let me just talk to you for a second here. Okay? Sometimes it may feel restrictive, but this is a good gift that God has given you. To be placed under your parents' authority and to learn what it means to obey God through their leadership. And all the parents are rejoicing at that. Now, parents... Let's turn on our own hearts for a second here, okay? God commands children to be under our authority, our gracious and good authority, but we are also commanded to be under authority. And we are supposed to model what being under authority looks like for our children. We're to nurture our children toward the Lord. We're not to exasperate our children and to frustrate them. That's actually a command from God given to us as parents. That's our responsibility. That's how we live under authority. And we're to do that by living under the authorities that God has placed in our lives. The government, employers, and even church leadership. Model what it looks like to your children to live under authority and not be autonomous. Even as believers, we have to constantly place ourselves under the authority of God's Word so that we don't travel down this path of autonomy and think that we decide what's right and wrong and we decide what we're going to do when we want to do it. And so as we, as we read these passages, verses 1 to 3 here, and as we look at the rest of the world, as we think about ourselves, we look at unbelievers, we think, man, it, it's so pervasive. Autonomy is so pervasive in the society we live in. Does God even see this? Does he even care about what's happening? I mean, what is he really going to do about this? And that leads us to our second piece of the struggle for dominion here. And this is found in verses 4 to 6. And I'll call this the Lord's comeback. Not like a Brett Favre type of comeback, but the Lord's comeback. His response here, alright? Verses 4 to 6. The contrast here, as you get to verse 4, is striking, okay? Alright? So you've talked about these earthly kings, and now look how God is described in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, Right? So you've got these earthly kings who are lifting up their fist in opposition to God, who he placed in authority and gave them the ability to rule. But God is enthroned in the heavens. He is exalted in power and glory. And when he sees these earthly kings, rulers, and people lift their fist in opposition to him, what does he do? 
Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The victory here is so lopsided that to even think about the assault on God's authority is, is humorous. I mean, come on. Really? Really? You guys are going to break our cords from, from yourselves? Such a lopsided victory. It's like a poodle attacking a grizzly bear, right? I mean, it's, it's just humorous to even think about what that would look like. And that's the reaction that God has here. When it says that he holds them in derision, it actually means that he mocks them for this stance. Back in chapter or in Psalm 1, people, wicked people are described as the scoffers. Well, it's the same thing here. They scoff at God's rule and God turns it right back on them and mocks them for their stupidity. And they're thinking that they can resist his authority. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here and just think about the vision of God that this gives us here. All right? You probably don't often think about God laughing or mocking. Okay? All right? So I just want to just pause and think about what this says about God here. One of the things it tells us is that he is never caught off guard. He's like a general who sees the entire battlefield and he sees the opposition coming up the middle and he just sort of snickers because he knows about the resources that he has in order to meet that opposition. But God doesn't only laugh here, okay? Look at verse 5. He laughs... But then look what he does. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God doesn't laugh at sin. He doesn't mock sin. What he laughs at is the idea that they can resist his rule and resist his authority. But he responds to sin with holy and righteous fury and anger. But I want you to see where this response climaxes here. All right, look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If you remember in verse 3, the rulers, the nations, spoke and gave what they were going to do. Now in verse 6, God tells us exactly what he's going to do to respond to earthly opposition to his rule. It's a very clear statement. And what's he going to do? This involves two main parts here. Track with me as we go through this, all right? He's going to put a king in a particular place. So he's talking about his response involves a king and it involves a particular place. And let's start with the idea that God has responded to human opposition by installing a king. Okay, that's what this says. What has God done to counter rebellion against him? He has put a king in place. Now, let me encourage you again. Don't jump too quickly forward. I know you want to and we'll get there. Don't jump too quickly to your New Testament. You need to read this in context. It's a basic rule of Bible study. What would David have meant as he wrote this? What would David have intended to say as he penned this. 
Now, to understand that, we're going to take a really quick journey through some Old Testament passages that talk about and anticipate a king coming to Israel. If you read your Old Testament very carefully, in the early books of the Old Testament, there are some passages that describe this future king coming. And they describe this king coming as the way that God deals with opposition. All right? Here's what I'm talking about. So, all the way back at the beginning, Adam and Eve sinned, okay? They lost the garden, they lost the presence of God, and God makes some very specific promises to them. One of those promises was that he would crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. Everything would be made right by the serpent getting what was due to him. So that's the first promise. Then you go forward to Genesis chapter 12, and here that promise is made a little more specific. These will come up on the screen here, so you can just follow along as I read them. Genesis chapter 12, this is God's word to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And look look at this. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This blessing is a reversal of the curses in Genesis chapter 3. And so God is saying, through a descendant of Abraham, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to make things the way they should be. All right? A little bit forward to Genesis 17. Again, God's talking to Abraham. Look what he says here. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And he reiterates some of those promises from Genesis 12. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And look at this. And kings shall come from you. So now, tied with the blessing is this idea that kings are going to come. Now, jump forward. This is one of my favorites. Genesis 49, okay? This will come up on the screen here in a couple of parts. This is where Jacob, who received those same promises, is now speaking to his sons. And he makes some amazing promises to which son? Judah. Look what he says. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Now, listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. A king, a line of kings is going to come through Judah until tribute comes to him. And listen to this. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. This king is going to have authority over not just Israel, but over the nations. And then verses 11 and 12, I won't read those to you, but really cool descriptions of this king's reign being so prosperous that you can leave a donkey tied to a grapevine, your best grapevine, and he'll eat all the grapes and it doesn't even matter. There'll be so many grapes, there'll be so much wine flowing freely that you could wash your clothes in it as expensive as it is, and things are so good that that doesn't even matter. This king is going to bring about that sort of prosperity. 
Now go forward to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Listen to this promise about this king. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, they're not there yet, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now listen to this, verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This king, these coming kings, need to be those who love God's word, meditate on God's word, and obey God's word. How does the book of Judges end? There was no, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. And so I think in Psalm 2, when David is meditating on God's plan to put the people, the opposition, in its place, I think when he says this here, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, he's thinking about all of these passages that promise a king who will be good and prosperous and who will love God's word. Once they get into the land, let me encourage you this afternoon to go read 2 Samuel chapters 5 through 7. There's a really interesting series of events that happen there. In 2 Samuel 5, David conquers Jerusalem, which Israel didn't possess up until that point. In 2 Samuel 6, the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem, which is God's presence with his people. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God makes the Davidic covenant with David. And what's the Davidic covenant? It's where God promises that the descendants of David will reign forever. And so Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6 speaks about a king and a place because these two come together in the reign of David. David knew about these earlier promises and he expected that God would one day, through his family line, bring a king... Someone, he didn't know who, who would set things right. Who would fulfill the expectation that all of these passages had set earlier in Scripture. And he would reign as king over the nations from Zion. That's what David was thinking about here. And so God's answer to human rebellion and evil is to install a king on his holy hill Dwelling in the presence of God, Zion. Now, that's our second piece of this. Now we get to the third piece here. 
And I told you back in verse 2 that we would talk about who the anointed is. Well, verse 6 is describing the anointed, the one who the people oppose, the one who will be the king. Now verses 7 through 9 give us some words from the anointed. So I think what's happening here, I'll call this the anointed's confidence. Okay? The anointed's confidence. So what's happening here is the anointed, David is writing these words, but he's putting these words in the mouths of all the future kings that will come from his line. And they're supposed to announce these words, they're supposed to say these words with the expectation that one of them will fulfill these words. And one of them will bring about what happens here in verses 7 through 9. Look at what he says in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. Well, what decree is that? It's the Davidic covenant. It's the promises that God made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so the king would announce these things at his installation ceremony. When he's coronated as king, he would say these words before the people. And he would remind them about the covenant that God had made with David. The promises that God had made to David. And the hope is that someone would fulfill those promises and would have victory over all the nations. If you have time this afternoon, I'd encourage you to go read 2 Samuel chapter 7. Look what he says in verses 8 and 9. These are the expectations. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You can see here in verse 8 that this king will come and he won't just possess the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, but he will possess all the nations. They will become his inheritance. It will be the whole earth. He will reign over all of creation like Adam was supposed to. This future Davidic king will actually fulfill that. The very nations in verse 2 who are opposed to God's reign, they will come under his authority and under his leadership. And certainly, he will bring blessing to many people, but he'll also bring judgment. Look what it says in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Those who opposed his rule will be singled out and they will be crushed by this Davidic king who's coming. Now, as you read this, again, let me just remind you, keep in mind, don't go to Jesus too quickly. Think about David writing this. And think about the kings of Israel, each one getting installed as the king over God's people and each one saying these words, The Lord said to me, you are my son, my my representative. Today I've begotten you. Today you've been installed as king. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your heritage. Think about every Davidic king saying these words and potentially the people thinking maybe this is it. Maybe this is going to happen. But you're good Bible students. You've read your Old Testament. What happens throughout the, the book of Samuel and the books of Kings? Every single Davidic king that comes to the throne fails, beginning with David. He's not the king who loves God's word, as Deuteronomy 17 
says that he should be. They fail to carry this mantle of the Son of God and the King who's going to defeat the nations and expand the inheritance of Israel to cover all the nations. Every single one of them fails, and they fail to the point where eventually they're exiled from the place, from the land that they've been given. None of them fulfill that. And all of them were shadows. All of them were shadows that were pointing forward and expecting that one day a king would come who would actually accomplish this and who would actually fulfill this. And he would bring judgment and he would bring blessing to the nations. Now we can jump forward. Listen to how the New Testament talks about this. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What is that good news? Concerning his son, a Davidic king, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared was installed as king, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name, what? Among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He was installed, recognized as king at his resurrection and recognized fully and completely as the Son of God there. Listen to Acts chapter 13, just a couple of verses here. This is Paul preaching again, verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So the king is installed at his resurrection, but we don't yet see him as having authority over all the nations. When will that happen? I want you to turn to Revelation 19. This is a fun one to read. Revelation 19. And as I read this, I want you to see if you can pick up echoes of Psalm chapter 2 in this. All right? See the connections that he's making here. Start in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. It's exactly what was promised in Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord 
of Lords. I have no doubt that John, as he penned this, was thinking about Psalm 2 and realizing that he was witnessing the culmination of those promises through Jesus Christ, the true Davidic king, who would break the nations and rule the nations with a rod of iron. So, in Psalm 2, David is anticipating this king that will come. You know, we're in kind of a similar situation right now. David was anticipating a first coming. We are anticipating a second coming of this king. And that leads us to our last piece of the struggle for dominion. In verses 10 through 12, all the way back in Psalm 2. In light of God's plan, here's what David says to God's opposition. Alright? Look what he says here. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. David is very graciously, in the meantime, saying, you better pay attention. This is our last point. It's an urgent caution. You better pay attention. Those of you who oppose God's rule, those of you who want to rip His cords away from you, you better listen. Here's what you need to do. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Turn from your self-law and your self-rule and pay homage. Verse 12. Kiss the Son. Serve Him. Fully acknowledge that He is who He is. Come before Him humbly with reverence and respect. And in verse 12, David says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Time is of the essence here. It's urgent. Yes, right now you think you have opposition to Him, but you better kiss the Son because His wrath is kindled quickly. And you will end up on the wrong side of history unless you obey the commands here in verses 10 through 12. That's for the unbelieving world. What about for us? What about for God's people? What do we do? How do we respond to this? We see the king. We see that he's exalted. We're anticipating his coming. Yet, in the meantime, we face opposition. We face difficulty. Maybe even persecution. What do we do? Look at the end of verse 12. The way this psalm ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed. How does Psalm 1 start? Blessed is the man who meditates on the Word of God. And this one bookends those two psalms. Blessed are those who think about His Word and because they think about His Word, they find refuge in Him. It's fascinating to think about how this psalm sets the themes for the Psalter because what do you find in the psalms over and over again? You find God's people pressed down. You find them facing difficulty you find David persecuted. I mean, just look down at Psalm 3 in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I mean, we could walk through psalm after psalm of this struggle that God's people have. David knew the Messiah was coming. He knew things would be set right But in the meantime, man, it's tough. 
But here's what you do. Take refuge in Him. That's how we respond in the meantime. While we're waiting for His second coming. While we're waiting for Revelation 19 to take place. We find refuge in Him. And as you read through the Psalms, it's amazing to see over and over again, this is the truth that God's people, David in particular, preach to themselves. A couple of verses on the screen. Psalm 5 and verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. And those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm chapter 7 and verse 1. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Psalm 17, 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Psalm 18 and verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. As David is meditating on his struggles, I think he uses this word refuge over and over again because he's going back to Psalm 2. And he knows, ah, Messiah's coming. He's coming and he's going to set things right. And I can hold on and I can take refuge in him while I wait for that to happen. Let me give you three very quick implications for us. And when I say quick, I mean quick. First of all, find your refuge in Christ and Him alone. It is so easy to look to money, to good health, to comfort, to security, to America, to any number of things to find our refuge and our rest in those things. Find it in Christ alone. Secondly, Let future hope gird you with courage now to do what we need to do. Throughout Scripture, one of the the motivations for obedience, for faithfulness now, is thinking about the future. Do that. Think about it. Think about Revelation 19 and what's coming. And then lastly... If the nations are really going to be His, we ought to announce judgment and blessing to all the nations. In Matthew 28 at the Great Commission, is it any accident that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me? Now that I'm risen from the dead, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, do what? Go to the nations. Psalm 2. So we ought to obey that command and announce judgment and blessing to the nations. So, let's find hope and refuge in Him and anticipate His coming. If we do that, we'll find great peace and joy in the midst of difficulty and of storms. Let's pray.